you by naturopathicearth.com. Here is certified health coach A. Gregory Luna with Confessions of an Obese Child. Hello, everybody. This is A. Gregory Luna. Of course, you can call me Gregory. And welcome back to another long-anticipated episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. Yes, I know it's been about six weeks, I believe, since the the last episode we did. And I believe the last one was on my weight gain anxiety. It's been some time. Of course, I'm a full-time teacher and I spend most of my time when I'm podcasting on naturopathic or naturopathy earth radio, MPE radio, which is the main feed. But uh, I, you know, I feel like I wanted to come back to confessions uh, to talk about something that I think is very personal. And this, and in the, the 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 title or the the uh, I guess the object of this episode is not too surprising. It's not too surprising, and it's talking about the relationship between trauma as a childhood and obesity later on. But before we begin, I do want to mention some things. Of course, the website is Naturopathic Earth, N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H-I-C, Earth, Naturopathic Earth, and there you can find the original written Confessions of an Obese Child blog, the first, I believe, 17 written blogs. And uh, there's plenty of clean eating articles, articles about toxins, articles about my own road, uh, dealing with orthorexia and dealing with uh, insomnia and dealing with learning how to eat well and so many other things. And just also in general, there's a lot of articles about just... Uh, toxins to avoid and essential oils to use and naturopathy and all these other things. But per germane to this particular thread, I am very open about my past. And if you've listened to all the confessions episodes, you know that I am very open about it. And I, I find it to be cathartic to be open about it. And kind of like what they say about internet trolls, how trolls are so rude on the internet because they can kind of hide behind the mic and you don't really see them. Uh, you don't see the person you're insulting the trolls now. And it's kind of the same way, you know, behind the microphone, uh, I guess I get some anonymity. I do know some people who actually that I encounter day to day who listen to these confessions, but at the same time, I, 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 I just, I'm not the type of person to keep things in or uh, compartmentalize or to suppress. I just, I don't, for me in particular, I just find it healthier to let things out. And that's why perhaps I've talked about a lot of things that, that, that perhaps others might not be as comfortable sharing. And full disclosure, I have approached friends who are formerly overweight or were overweight as children. And I tell them, it's like, you know, I have this podcast, Confessions of an Obese Child. I would love to interview you. And a lot of people, in fact, everyone I've encountered in full candor, um, don't feel comfortable talking about their experiences as an overweight child when they were overweight children. And I personally find that difficult to understand because I am just the type of person who's very open about everything. And I know that's just me and not everybody's like that. And with the people who don't feel comfortable talking about things, I, I get that on one level, and I would just exhort them and encourage them to 
give it a shot because I think in general, like with therapy, talking is therapy. And just even by talking about it, you can get these things out. Now, there's there's some things that perhaps are so painful and bring so much shame and guilt that you don't ever even want to utter it. So I guess classic examples of this would be rape, sexual molestation uh, as a child, which we'll, we'll talk about today. And uh, I, I suppose those are the two big ones that are off the top of my head that you don't even want to talk about. But I, I, I can understand that on one level. But on, on another level, again, it, it's keeping these things in are the things that eat us up and bring us so much shame. And lots of times these things weren't even our faults. And even if they were our fault, there's no benefit to self-loathing. There's no benefit to shame. Uh, arguably, there's no benefit to guilt. Now, some would say guilt is your conscience's way of telling you you've done something wrong. Perhaps. And I think a certain amount of guilt for doing something is good because it kind of reminds you uh, when you've done something wrong. And hopefully all of us are built with a good moral compass, but sometimes we're not. And sometimes we feel guilty for the littlest things. They call that scrupulosity. You know, so you 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 go and go to the bin of some large supermarket and you try an M&M and then the, or some nut. And then the whole night you're like praying to God, asking for forgiveness. And it's disproportionate, right? It's disproportionate. You just took a, a nut from a sample. Uh, but but a lot of people will will focus on that. So it's everything in balance. But I think in general, it's it's really cathartic to talk about these things. So hopefully, eventually, I will find people that I can interview who can be very candid and and forthright about the experiences they had as a child. Until then, the confessions episodes are going to come pretty uh, infrequent, probably about once every six weeks. I did feel it'd be good to talk about this particular episode because uh, this topic because it's not too surprising. So let's take a little musical interlude and then we're going to begin. Okay, and we're back. Now, this format's going to be a little more like NPE Radio's format, where I'm going to kind of glean off of an article. But I think this article is very forthright about obesity. So this comes from Time Magazine, and it's titled, How Childhood Trauma Can Cause Adult Obesity, which is, again, not surprising. The author is Maya Salovitz. Dr. Vincent Folletti, founder of Kaiser Permanente's Department of Preventive Medicine and director of its obesity treatment program, was seeing some good results. His patients were losing 50, 80, even hundreds and hundreds of pounds. He might have considered the program a success, if not for the fact that the participants who were doing the best, those who were both the most obese and losing the most weight, kept dropping out. Felitti was baffled. Why invariably did so many patients quit just as they approached their healthy goal weight? Ella, for example, a middle-aged woman who entered the program in the mid-1980s, morbidly obese at 295 pounds, had managed to whittle her frame by 150 pounds over six months. That is fast. Instead of being happy, he said, she was having anxiety attacks and was terrified. He asked Ella what she thought was going on. Finally, the story came out, he says. She had been molested as a child, 
both within her family and outside it. She tried to escape by marrying at 15 at her mother's urging. It was a disastrous marriage. Her husband was crazy jealous. They divorced in two years. She remarried. Her new husband was also jealous. This is not a surprise. He was convinced that when she was hanging the laundry, she was sexually posturing to attract the neighbors, close quote. That's what Felitti said. When Ella was overweight, Felitti learned her husband was less suspicious and her fear of his rage, perhaps he saw her new slimmer weight as a provocation, was probably spurring her anxiety. Felitti wondered if there was something similar barring weight loss in other patients or causing obesity itself. In the late 80s, he began a systematic study of 300 obese people and discovered that 50% of them, 50, 5 had been sexually abused as children. The rate is more than 50% higher than the rate normally reported by women and more than triple the rate in men. Indeed, the average rates of sexual abuse are themselves unsettling. And this is an interesting quote or interesting number. According to a large 2003 study conducted by John Breer and Diana Elliott of the University of Southern California, USC, 14% of men and 32% of women said they were molested at least once as a child. So you're looking at one in eight men and one in three women. And honestly, I think that number is probably higher because, I mean, how do you get that accurate? There's going to be people who are, who are still going to deny that. In recent years, studies by both Felitti and others have largely confirmed the association between sexual abuse as well as other types of traumatic childhood experience and eating disorders or obesity. A 2003 study of more than 11,000 California women found that those who had been abused as children were 27% more likely to be obese as adults compared with those who had not, after adjusting for other factors. A 2009 study of more than 15,000 adolescents found that sexual abuse in children raised the risk of obesity 66% in males in adulthood. That study found no such effect in women, but did find a higher, rate of risky, higher risk of eating disorders in sexually abused girls. Discoveries by Felitti and colleagues have also helped give rise to broader work linking stressful experiences early in life, as early as in the womb, to effects on health and behavior later on, such as an increased risk of heart disease or becoming addicted to drugs. Scientists are finding that such effects are not only long-lasting, but can even be inherited by future generations. So, I mean, this, this is just my two cents so far here. It, of course, it's not a surprise that people that were molested or abused, physically sexually abused, as young children are more likely to be overweight. They're not dealing with the underlying trauma of what happened to them. And as I mentioned in, in previous episodes, the body needs a, to find a way to release this, 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 this festering anxiety of you not dealing with the, the fact that you were abused. And some people, it's going to be turning to alcohol when they get old enough to drink or turning to sexual deviance. And then with some people, it's eating. Also, off the top of my head, I know that there it's pretty common Like for women, if they were abused as a young child, that they not only eat to numb the pain, but also to, to gain weight, because if they gain weight, they feel that they're going to be less attractive to men and therefore less likely to be sexually abused 
by a man later on. And even though this thinking perhaps is a little distorted because they're no longer going to be children and therefore it's much harder, of course, to sexually molest an adult, um, but the thought process is so seared into their mind that they think that this is a, a good, healthy coping mechanism to become morbidly overweight so they don't have to risk uh, the thought or the experience of being a, a molested or, or assaulted. In decades of experiments with rats, for instance, neuroscientist Michael Meany at McGill University in Canada and his colleagues have shown that such environmentally induced traits can be passed down, then undone, also by environment. Meany studied rats with differing maternal styles. Some were naturally nurturing. They licked and groomed their pups constantly. Others were less attentive and even neglectful. Mother rats placed in stressful environments like isolation had greatly decreased the capacity for nurture. What researchers found was that these behavioral traits were passed down to future generations. Pups born to neglectful mothers endured stressful childhoods and grew up to become neglectful mothers themselves. But when babies born to stressed or less attentive mothers were instead placed with nurturing, affectionate mothers, that early experience changed the pups. They adapted quickly to new mothering styles and grew up to tend carefully to their own offspring. This is encouraging. These pups' adaptation was then passed to successive generations as well. All right. That's good. It's good for the the rats. When Felitti first presented his Kaiser Permanente data connecting obesity with childhood molestation at a national meeting in 1990, most colleagues dismissed him immediately. One even claimed that obese people made up such stories to justify their failed lives. David Williamson, an epidemiologist at the CDC, was the lone exception. He said that a large epidemiological study was needed to determine whether there were any implications of Felitti's findings for public health. Felitti knew that he had just the right data say. Kaiser Permanente has the largest medical evaluation facility in the developing world, diagnosing some 58,000 patients annually. Even if a minority agreed to discuss their childhood and, and allow anonymous use of their medical records, that would be a huge sample. And so the Adverse Childhood Experience Study was born as a collaboration of Felitti and another CDC researcher. For the past several decades, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study has recorded reports of negative childhood experience in more than 17,000 patients. Adverse experiences included ongoing child neglect, living with one or no biological parent, having a mentally ill, incarcerated, or drug-addicted parent, witnessing domestic violence, and sexual, physical, or emotional abuse. The researchers then searched for correlations between these experiences and adult health and the risk of disease. The results became clear. Compared with persons with no adverse childhood experiences, a person with four or more of the aforementioned has almost doubled the risk of obesity. Having four or more adverse childhood experiences more than doubles the risk of heart attack and stroke and nearly quadruples the risk of emphysema, I guess because you smoke to deal with the anxiety. The risk for depression is more than quadrupled. Although many of these outcomes could reflect the influences of genes and other environmental influences beyond those occurring in childhood, the tight relationship between adverse childhood experience numbers and increasing health risks makes the role of child trauma very clear. The psychology is relatively straightforward. Being abused or otherwise traumatized is painful, and food can be a numbing or comforting escape. I just mentioned that. 
Hence, abused children may turn to overeating, which causes obesity. Indeed, adverse childhood experiences are also strongly linked with other types of unhealthy self-medications. For example, cigarette smoking, which accounts for the increased rate of emphysema among (laughs) uh, adverse childhood experience scores, as I just mentioned, and drug abuse. As Felitti puts it, being fat or having otherwise unhealthy behavior is not the problem. It's the solution. Exactly. The psychological effects often exacerbate health problems that the physiological stress response has already caused. High scores of adverse childhood experiences who do not overeat, smoke, or take drugs still have high rates of obesity, heart disease, depression, and diabetes. Well, the mechanism for these risks appear to lie in the biology of the stress response system and the way environment affects a person's genetic activity. That is fascinating. So you don't even have to overeat or smoke or anything, but it's, it's like your genes learn because they too were traumatized at an early age to almost mimic the response of eating too much crap, smoking, and taking drugs. That is fascinating. If, for instance, a modern childhood, child's early life experience in the womb and during the first five years particularly is constantly stressful, it would be incredibly energy-consuming, said Dr. Bruce Perry, senior fellow at the Child Trauma Academy. If your genes get the message that you're entering a stressful world, it makes complete adaptive sense to take the existing metabolism and tune it up to deposit fat and store energy to prepare for what the body is expecting will be a challenging and stressful life, he says. Quote, early adverse experience can disrupt the body's metabolic systems. One of the cornerstones of biology is that our body's systems, when they are young, are reading the environment and establishing patterns to be maximally adaptive. Researchers also posit that high levels of stress hormones caused by adverse childhood experiences can wear down the body over time. A temporary spike in blood sugar in response to a stressful event may be useful to power an adaptive fight-or-flight response, but over the long term, constant high blood pressure could raise a person's risk for heart attack and stroke. Studies have also found that consistently elevated levels of stress hormones like cortisol can lead to permanent damage in certain brain regions linked to depression. Recently, scientists have discovered that these changes can themselves be passed down from one generation to the next, a burgeoning new area of study called epigenetics. Such research may have significant and long-term implications for the prevention of obesity, addiction, and other illnesses related to early stress life. After all, reducing childhood exposure to trauma in one generation may further benefit the generation's children and grandchildren. Okay. So, let's take a little break and we'll wrap this up. Okay, so... This article is not really revelatory in any way. If you've ever done the deep work, or not even the deep work, like even shallow work, to figure out why you overeat or why you have the addiction that you have. Because I do know, because I get feedback, that there are people who listen to this podcast who don't have overeating issues. So it makes sense that if you had early childhood trauma, and it doesn't have to be even sexual molestation. The article mentioned that you could just been in a very stressful 
uh, situation, even in the back in the womb, you know, your mom was stressed out. There could have been uh, fighting in your household. There could have been a drug addiction, alcoholism, all these things. And they spur you to eat because when you're very young, think about six or seven years old, you really don't have access to alcohol and all the other uh, foregoing addictions that you could possibly have at that age. So food is there. Food is always there. We can't avoid it. We have to eat all the time. And so it makes sense that you'll have a, a proclivity to overeat and choose that as your, uh, I guess, coping mechanism of choice. Now, personally, for me, of course, as I mentioned way back in episode one, I turned to food because my father was a raging alcoholic. But he, he wasn't always a raging alcoholic. He was one of those mercurial, volatile type. So my mother and I would not know what he'd be like when he came home. If you want more information on this, go to episode, I believe, 15, 16 on the uh, volatile doctor. And so some night, some days, if he wasn't drinking, he'd come home and be like, Albertito, how are you? Let's go to soccer practice because he'd be my coach and he would take me places and we had a great time. Other times, if he was drinking, he'd come home and be uh, abusive and not, not necessarily physically abusive, but just verbally abusive. You know, oh, you're a piece of, you know, you're a piece of sheet rock and uh, oh, you're horrible. You're fat. Get out of my face. Da, da, da. And then he would yell at my mom and tell her to go to hell and all these things. And so growing up and throughout my whole childhood, but especially at the formative years, you know, six, seven, eight years old, I didn't know what to get. So I would always be very nervous when he'd come home because I had no idea what he was going to be like. And so I fueled that, that I, I, I guess I, I, I kept that in and I didn't really know how to deal with that anxiety about what he was going to be like. Uh, unless it was eating, because eating, of course, brings comfort. When you eat, you release endorphins and dopamines and so forth. And so I'd eat and I'd keep, and keep eating and eating and eating and eating. Then my mother was not the most maternal person. She was like one of those rads who was not the most maternal. And she was very, she was mired in a lot of depression that she even admits she got from her father. Her father was neglectful of her, and um, there were six siblings. And he played favorites with some of them. And for whatever reason, she was not one of his favorites. And she felt uh, neglected and rejected. And so that kind of fueled her depression. And so by the time I came around, um, she was able to mask it to a certain extent when she met my father. But uh, by the time I, w I was around, by the time I was in my formative years, she was mired in Great Depression. So I didn't really have her to turn to. And then my father was waxing hot and cold. So I had nobody but food. I had older brothers. And uh, as a whole, they were great. I have that episode on the popular brother. They were great. But you know, at that age, when you have older brothers, you really can't go to them when you're eight years old and be like, you know, middle brother, um, I eat my emotions. You, know, you don't really talk like that when you're eight. So you eat, and then of course you're you're made fun of at school, which propels you to eat more, and you have shame, and you try to hide it, and then you order pizzas, and you order food, and you hide the cartons, and you know all the things that I've mentioned in previous episodes, in the first 15 episodes. I did all those things. So my, my point in all of this is this article, I guess, is just bringing validity to what we already know. 
kids who have been traumatized on some level, early childhood trauma, or they call it ECT or ACT, uh, or ACE, adverse childhood experience, these kids are more likely to be overweight. And so you, 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 you use food to numb the pain and you become overweight. And then once you become overweight, uh, you know, it's very difficult to lose the weight. I've quoted that study before, something like 90% of people who lose more than, more than 50 pounds gain it back in their lifetime. It's very hard to lose weight and maintain it your entire life. And I think one of the reasons is because we are built with self uh, self-jeopardizing mechanisms. We have coping mechanisms that we've built to cope with the growing up obese and the trauma that came from it. And go back to that episode, three, four episodes back, where I talk about how growing up overweight really sabotaged almost all of my relationships. And you develop coping mechanisms uh, to deal with it. And so, like for example, for me, I have a little OCD. Uh, I'm a little neurotic. And again, go back to that episode. That episode really talks about it quite a bit. And everybody who's listened to this has different has different tendencies. But most people who grow up with certain trauma, not just obesity, but any trauma, will develop coping mechanisms because the brain needs to find a way to cope with it because it's too hard to deal with the trauma. And so when when you get overweight, then it's not like uh, even if you lose the weight, you have a healthy relationship with food because you never had a healthy relationship with food. That's why you're overweight. And it's not like one day you just wake up and you're like, oh, I know how to eat well and not eat my emotions. So then it takes the deep work of going to therapy or just doing a lot of self-examination and introspection to figure out why you're doing it to stop those self-destructive tendencies. So it's one thing to stop the self-destructive eating tendencies. It's another thing to address the coping mechanisms, the coping mechanisms that we still cling to from our childhood. And me personally, the eating, my emotions, isn't nearly, nearly as bad as it was before. If you go to the episode on college dysfunction and you go to the episode about food as my mistress, I really talk about my 20s and 30s and how my relationship with food and exercise was at that time. Luckily, the last three, four years, I, I, don't, uh, I don't eat my emotions, uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I don't want to be disingenuous. I can't say that I never eat my emotions, but I don't do it nearly as often as I used to. And of course, everything's a work in progress. But the coping mechanisms, the coping mechanisms are the, the, the big obstacle uh, that that I'm working on now and then I continue to work on because as I mentioned in that episode about how growing up overweight jeopardizes your relationships, I don't want to live a life where these coping mechanisms screw everything up. And not just like relationships with the opposite sex, but relationships with my own children. Go back to that episode I did on the stocky son. I think that's episode 20 with my eldest son who's about to turn seven. And I don't want to project my sheetrock onto him because then he's more likely to grow up overweight and use food as, as a crutch. So I have to be very kind of vigilant and weary of that. But the, the, the big takeaway, guys, here is we have to do the deep work. We have to look in the mirror and we have to be accountable for everything we put in our mouth. This is for alcoholics or people who smoke 
dope or do drugs or whatever. We have to look in the mirror. The, the, the time of blaming others is gone because blaming others really, what does that do? How does that help you? It doesn't, it doesn't help you. Yeah, my mom was a, you know, just in and aloof and my father was an alcoholic. So what? So what? Everybody's dealt a deck of cards and everybody's got to figure out a way to deal with it. So being a victim and being in that victim status might make you feel better at night because you're like, oh, I was abused or, oh, you know, my father was an alcoholic or my brother was uh, addicted to to drugs and I grew up with that. But ultimately, how is that going to lead to healing? It doesn't. We have to go from being a survivor to a thriver. And you can't get to that point, in my honest, humble opinion, unless you do the deep work. So why we have these addictions or crutches doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. What matters is, what are we going to do about it now? We need to stop the self-destructive tendencies and behavior that we have and do the deep work. And if that requires therapy, go to therapy. If that requires just talking to a friend or having an accountability buddy like they do in AA or or uh, uh, Overeaters Anonymous or any of those, that's fine. If it means talking to a pastor or a priest, that's fine. If it means having a, a diary or a video diary or, or even a, a podcast, that's fine. But the key is we have to talk about it. We have to get it out into the air, into the ether, look in the mirror and say, yes, I have this problem. What am I going to do about it? How am I going to fix it? Because I don't want to pass it on to the next generation, even as this article mentioned. I don't want my kids to have the same baggage. And Lord knows I I feel bad or guilty about, as it is, they're going to be the product of a divorced uh, parents. I'm already dealing with that kind of guilt. So I don't need to deal with more guilt about passing my baggage onto them. So it's imperative even if you don't have kids or you're planning to have kids or if you have kids now, to do the deep work because we want to break this cycle. We want to break this cycle of self-harm and addiction and self-loathing and using fill-in-the-blank as some coping mechanism or to soothe the pain. We need to confront the pain, do some exposure therapy and tackle it and fight it for our lives and for the sake of our loved ones that we have. So that's all I have to say about this. Please give me feedback. Tell me what you think. Before I leave a couple of things, please go listen to NPE radio on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. That is the main um, podcast for the website. And a lot of the things that are on there, guys, I know some of you might not even listen to NPE radio that you just listen to confessions. Uh, will help you with weight loss. It helps you with coping uh, with stuff. It also deals with things that jeopardize weight loss, you know, hidden toxins that make us stay fat, for example. So please peruse those titles and find one uh, that you find here liking and listen to them. Also, we have Kate's Apothecary, which is my partner, Kate McCall's podcast on aromatherapy. Incidentally, I just released 
an MP radio episode on how there's some toxins in essential oils that may lead to uh, gynecomastia in boys, which is having breasts in boys, boys who are not even overweight. Going back to episode seven on the bra there. So please check out those episodes. And lastly, please subscribe to this podcast. It would mean a lot to me and it doesn't take any time at all. And if you can post a review for Confessions of an Obi's Child, give me some constructive feedback, give me an honest review. It would take you two seconds and it would mean a great deal to me. All right, guys, take care. God bless. Do the deep work. It'll pay off. I'm doing the deep work as much as I humanly can every day. That's what we got to do. You know, we are dealt with a certain cards like in poker and it's what are we going to do about it? You know, we have to work on it. All right, guys, take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. Make sure to visit us at www.naturopathicearth.com for additional confessions, wellness articles, recipes, and a whole lot more. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Naturopath Earth. See you next time.